So friends, in this morning's story from chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, we come across what is, chronologically speaking, the very first miracle of Jesus' public ministry. But John, the writer of this Gospel, doesn't just call it a miracle. He actually calls this a sign. And what he means by that is that it's not meant to be just a, a raw display of supernatural power. But rather he means that it's supposed to act for, to us as a sign. It's meant to point us to something important about who Jesus is. And when you put it like that, it kind of feels like there is a lot at stake in this miracle. Because Jesus here isn't just performing some sort of parlor trick for us, but rather he is advertising to the world for the very first time something important about what he is all about. And with the stakes thus heightened, what is it, what is it, pray tell, that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, God Emmanuel, what is it that love in human form chooses to expend his omnipotent power on for the very first time? Does he feed the hungry? No, he does not. Does he heal the sick? Again, no, he does not. Does he cause the lame to walk and the blind to see? No, he does not. Does he bring someone back from the dead? No, he does not. He will in due course, but, but not at this moment. Not for his very first miracle. No, instead, instead, for his very first miracle, the way Ju Jesus chooses to reveal his wonder-working power to the world is by miraculously transforming 120 gallons of water into wine. Why? In order to keep raging a seven-day-long party. Now, we don't talk about this a lot at church, but Jesus here is exuding some real frat boy energy, isn't he? So, so the question for us today, I think, is what does this sign, frat bro though it may be, what does this sign have to tell us about who Jesus is and potentially what we, our followers, should be, how, what we should be about as well? And to find the answers to that question, I think what we need to do is to parse the story that Stephanie so, did such a great job reading for us this morning. Uh, because as you will discover as we work our way through the Gospel of John, and I hate to say this out, out loud, but for the next 15 weeks, we're going to be journeying through the Gospel of John. But what you will discover over these ne next 15 weeks is that out of all the Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is the least straightforward. There's so much nuance and subtlety in what he says. You really have to take a really close look at all of his stories. Uh, so again, this is the story that we just heard read. Jesus, Jesus' mother, and Jesus' disciples are at a wedding feast in the village of Cana, which is just a little village located eight miles due north of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth 
We're not told how they're connected to the bride and groom, but because Mary is there, presumably the bride and groom are, are, are somehow acquaintances of the Holy Family. And the disciples are just there as Jesus's plus 12. Uh, <laughs> And it turns out this is actually a thing that happened. Your, your students, students would come to a wedding with a teacher. It was a thing that happened. Now, at some point during this wedding feast, which customarily would last seven days, Mary becomes aware of the fact that the wine has run out. And while even at a wedding today, that would be considered a social faux pas, back then it was even more so. It would have been a matter of great shame for the bride and groom the guests would have perceived it as a huge lapse in hospitality. But again, we're not told why the wine ran out. We don't know whether it was poor planning on the bride and groom's part. We don't know if some unanticipated guest showed up and were drinking more than their fair share. And we don't know if it was just a simple matter of poverty and there was never going to be enough wine for everybody to drink in the first place. Those are all interesting questions, but the story simply does not tell us. In any case, Mary brings this fact to Jesus's attention, to which Jesus replies, and I quote, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now I recognize in English that that sounds pretty bad. Uh, so you need to know that, that in the Greek in which John was writing, it also sounds pretty bad. <laughs> now, it's not rude per se, but it's very brusque. He, he's creating social and emotional distance with his mother. It'd be like if you were talking to your own mother and you said, listen, lady, this has got nothing to do with me. So not necessarily rude, but, but certainly brusque. Jesus then says, my hour has not yet come. And in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is talking about his hour, what he is referring to is his death on the cross. So, so talk about a non sequitur. Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds saying, it's not yet my time to die. Right? That, that, that's a little weird. That's a little weird. But that weirdness, honestly, doesn't seem to matter much because Mary, in true motherly fashion, ignores Jesus' protest altogether, and she tells some nearby servants simply to do whatever he tells them to do. Jesus here proves to be a bit of a mama's boy, because he, despite his initial protest, right, he caves in and does exactly as his mother told him to do. He instructs those servants to fill up six 20-gallon stone containers that are nearby, uh, containers that are usually used for, for Jewish purification rituals, and the servants do exactly as they're told. He then has them ladle out some, and lo and behold, it has been miraculously transformed into wine. The servants take it to the caterer who tastes it, and he declares that it is not just wine, but it is very, very, very good wine. In fact, it's wine that's better than any that has yet to be served at this wedding. And so it is, the wedding feast of this unknown couple, tangentially related to the Holy Family, can continue on un.
interrupted. This is the story of Jesus' very first miracle. Now, for as small, right, as small and, and underwhelming as this first miracle may appear, and honestly, for as strange as it is in the way it plays out in this somewhat bizarre interaction between Jesus and his mother, I do believe that this miracle, this sign is actually pointing us to something profound. And that something, I believe, is something to do with joy. Because there is a way, isn't there? There there is a way that, that we can throw ourselves after life. There is a way that we can throw ourselves after the pursuit of happiness and joy and pleasure. That, that as we do it, it's a way of denying or ignoring the harder aspects of life. And when I say the harder aspects of life, what I'm talking about is, is on a personal level, I'm talking about our struggles at home, at school, at work. On a global level, I'm talking about the, the violence and war that continues to plague our world. And on a universal human level, I'm talking about the fact that, that at some point, all of us are simply going to cease to be. At some point, we are all going to die. And there is a way, isn't there, that we can go and drink and party and go on seven-day benders with our friends as a way of putting out of our minds all of these hard things, all of these uncomfortable facts about our existence. And I think if we took just two seconds, we could probably point to someone in our own lives, preferably not in the sanctuary, but we could point to someone in our own lives who is living their lives just like that. But there is also another way of practicing joy, isn't there? Another way in which we we don't close our eyes to the hard places and the uncertainty of life, but rather, there is a way where we take all of those hard things in fully. And rather than letting them overcome us with anxiety and dread and fear, we let them instead just give increased poignancy, increased meaning to the present moment. And because we fully recognize that life is hard and tomorrow is not guaranteed for any one of us, our joy in the present moment is elevated. It is all the more, right? All the more rich, all the more real, just all the more. And so, yeah, resting in that kind of joy, resting in that kind of joy, of course, we're going to have a second round with our friends. Maybe we're going to have a third round with our friends, even if it means we have to Uber home, because life is short, and this, pres- this present moment is such a precious thing. But that is a very different way, isn't it? It's a very different way of pursuing joy. And that is why Jesus, in that awkward exchange with his mother, announces that it is not yet his time to die, 
and only then proceeds to save the party by transforming the water into wine. The joy that he's living, the joy that he, he's pointing to with this sign, the joy that he, he's inviting his followers into, the joy that he is all about, it isn't joy in denial of his death that is looming out there on the horizon, but it's joy that is made all the richer in the present moment because he knows, Jesus knows that his time on earth is short. And interestingly, this is an idea that actually pops up in a lot of different places in our scriptures, not, not just here. And it is perhaps nowhere uh, more clearly articulated than in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book from the Old Testament, a book that was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born, a book that he would have read and would have been very familiar with himself. Uh, if you've ever heard that phrase, there is a season for everything that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. You're already familiar with it yourself. Uh, but it needs to be said that the book of Ecclesiastes is widely regarded by scholars as the most emo book in the Bible. Because from start to finish, it sounds as though it is written by an angsty teenager. Unless you think I'm exaggerating, I'm going to share with you the opening lines of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That is how the book starts, and it only goes downhill from there. This teacher goes on to articulate how various aspects of human life are meaningless. Some of the things that he declares are meaningless is wisdom. Wisdom, he says, meaningless. Pleasures, says the teacher, meaningless. Riches, says the teacher, meaningless. Doubly meaningless. Social advancement, says the teacher, meaningless. Human achievement, meaningless. All of these things and more Ecclesiastes declares as meaningless. But I want you to know today that the, the Hebrew word that is translated uh, in most versions of the Bible as meaningless, uh, in Hebrew, that word actually means breath or mist or vapor. Breath or mist or vapor, which means it hangs in the air for just a second, and then it's gone. Right? It's fleeting. And if you'll permit me some special effects, right? can you see that? Mist, vapor. It hangs in the air for, for, for just a second, and then it's gone. Life, says the book of Ecclesiastes, is like that. It's breath. It's vapor. It's mist. And so after this extended meditation on the mistness, the vaporness, the breathness of all life, what conclusion does the teacher in Ecclesiastes come to? It's pretty great, so I'm just going to read it to you straight here. Uh, this is what the teacher says. The teacher says, I have observed something else under the sun. 
The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. And the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. And the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. So go ahead, says the teacher, eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne and live happily with the person that you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. There will be none of that. Eat your food with joy and drink your wine. And so friends, may, may this kind of joy the joy of Ecclesiastes, the joy that Jesus was all about, joy that finds its fullness not in spite of the fragility of human life, but because of it. May that kind of joy fill your days, and may it be what you too are all about. In Jesus' name, may it be so.